Philippians 1, beginning in verse 3. Happy Father's Day to our dads. Thankful for so many of you that are strong men of integrity and perseverance. For the indispensable place that you have in your homes and your families. Hope you have a nice day with your loved ones. Philippians verse one, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. This is God's holy word. He gives it to his people for our good. Give your attention to its reading. After I read this passage, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. You may respond with, thanks be to God. Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, in these moments, would you open our ears and our minds? Would you soften our hearts? Would you enliven our souls to the glory of your holy name? For Christ's sake, amen. I've seen as a keychain and a meme online, perhaps, and then I did a little Google search the other day for this. I found out that it's the title, roughly, of a devotional. It's a phrase that goes like this. Good morning, this is God. I will be handling all your problems today, and I don't need your help. So have a good day. The saying is meant to put us at ease about our life, all of the stress that perhaps we're facing that day on a particular day, and just to not have to worry about it. But the desire to want to believe that this kind of approach is the right one, or this is really the way that God handles our circumstances, is a bad one. We want to have everything solved for us, don't we? That's sort of a natural desire of our flesh. We want to live on easy street and to not have any problems or stress to deal with. This phrase is interesting, isn't it? Because it recognizes that God is in control. He's sovereign over all things, which he is, and which we confess unashamedly. But it leads to a non-biblical response. You see, the sovereignty of God, when we, when we think and we speak about this biblically, what it does is it gives us a hope that God is bringing all things to the greatest and most glorious end that any of us could even fathom, and even beyond that. But the hope that God's sovereignty gives us anchors us in the present in order to live a certain way, in order to, to live according to the way that God has called us. And we can do so without fear because of his sovereign power. 
much more than saying, I'll handle your problems, don't worry about how you do anything. God says, my purposes can't be thwarted. Now go and live according to how I call you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul places so much importance on the the, the way that we live the Christian life. And that principle is on display here in Philippians. Paul, in this passage, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is showing to us the kind of Christ-like living that he wants the Philippians to have. And the kind of Christ-like living that we are to seek to have for the glory of God. To live like Christ. To live like Paul because Paul lives like Christ. To have unity and love and joy and hope. But it's all rooted in what Christ has done. Not just his example, but the power of the gospel as we find it in him. So here's our life-transforming reality this morning. Since God finishes what he starts, we can entrust the future to him and live in the present with Christ-like love and steadfast hope an unshakable joy. Since God finishes what he starts, we can entrust the future to him and live in the present with Christ-like love, steadfast hope, and unshakable joy, no matter the circumstance. Prayers of love, joy, and hope surround uh, this short passage as Paul speaks to this congregation that he loves so much. So first, let us look at these prayers of love, joy, and hope. Paul begins with thanksgiving or reporting upon his thanksgiving. I thank my God every time I remember you. There Paul is living with the principle of soli deo gloria, isn't he? He's looking at something good in his life. The Philippian Christians, this church that he has a lot of affection for, this church that he loves very much, and they have just blessed him with a financial gift for his ministry that provides the occasion for this letter. Thank you for your support of me. Thank you for your love for me. But he uses it as an opportunity to thank God. I thank God every time I remember you. Whatever you're thankful for in your life, allow that thankfulness to redound back to God. Give God the glory for all things in your life. Paul shows us another interesting principle here. He has received this material gift in all likelihood very close to the time of the writing of this letter. The Philippians have supported his missionary work and his ministry. But uh, he looks beyond the material gift to the person who gives it. That's a pretty natural thing for us to do, but it's, it's good to be reminded of that, isn't it? Today is Father's Day, and so I'm slated to receive a gift at some point today. At least I fully expect to receive a gift at some point today. I'm kidding. She she actually already gave me, my girls already gave me my gift. Uh, Usually on days where presents are involved, uh, the the ladies in my house can't wait past 6 a.m. to give it. So I've already gotten my gift. And if there's one thing that I I have learned in in my life, whatever nice thing I get, it pales in comparison to the love, the emotion, the feelings that I will have for my family. Right? You look past the object that is given to you to the one who gives it. That's what Paul does. He thanks God for the people, the Philippian Christians. And, and there's going to be a, a greater impression of this upon our hearts as this passage goes 
as we work through this passage, that God, the God who loves people, calls us to love people as well. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. That's kind of a a special thing that we get out of Scripture, that the God who sits enthroned, the God besides whom there are none others, he is our God. Kind of an interesting thing to think about for Paul, isn't it? That he grew up with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as his God, memorizing the Old Testament, singing the Psalms. A wonderful student of scripture, but he had initially rejected the Messiah that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had sent. He rejected that Messiah. But when confronted with that risen and exalted Christ on the road to Damascus, he comes to the realization that the the triune God of Scripture is his covenant God. What a great and marvelous privilege that we have to say with Psalm 18, the Lord, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, in whom I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold. Paul reports on these prayers, and something sticks out as he talks about them. He says, in all of my prayers, all for you, always, every single time I pray. He keeps on emphasizing that idea of all. And first he wants to emphasize the extent of his love and his affection. Every time I pray, I'm thankful for all of you. Right? But another thing that he does, and my seminary professor suggests this in his commentary, Dennis Johnson Another thing that he does is, in a subtle way, Paul is beginning to give an example to the Philippians of the kind of unity he wants them to have. He does it by subtly introducing them or reintroducing them to the idea of their unity in Christ. In all my prayers for all of you. Now imagine that he's writing to a congregation where some disunity has crept in. Later on in the letter, he's going to appeal to Euodia and Syntyche to reconcile and to, to come back together. So in a subtle way, what he's doing here is he's looking at a congregation that has some disunity that has crept in, and he throws his arms around all of them to remind them that I'm praying for all of you because you have unity, because you are united in the gospel of Christ. He'll go on to say in Philippians chapter 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So he appeals to this reality. In a subtle way, he he reminds them of the reality that in Christ, they are one. In Christ, they have unity. But it's imperative for us to remind ourselves that that unity, that union is in Christ. It stands upon truth. It doesn't hang in the air, connected to nothing. It is unity in the gospel, and the gospel contains truth. I heard someone speak this past week, a denomination that is... uh, struggling with all kinds of questions, not ours, another one. And someone got up and was saying, unity is not uniformity. And they were saying it in the context of this huge issue where there's massive disagreement. Both sides are are going different ways and appealing to them to, to stay together, saying unity is not uniformity. The problem with that kind of thinking is when you have competing truths, you're not united in the truth. 
Paul is saying we are united in the truth of the gospel. It stands upon truth. The Philippians were happy to join with Paul in his missionary work to support him, to give him financial support and prayer support. Why? Because they see the truth of the gospel and the necessity of the gospel. That Paul needs to go through the world whenever the Lord allows him to do so because people need to hear the truth. Paul writes this letter to us under house arrest, which is much more pleasant than being in a Roman prison cell, but still rather constricting. Oftentimes, those under house arrest would often even be chained to a Roman guard. They'd be able to to move around in a house that perhaps they rented in a particular city, but they would be chained oftentimes to a guard. They were not able to move around freely. Paul, at this point of his ministry, was not allowed to go into the marketplace or to the synagogue and to proclaim Christ. And so it would have been tempting for many people who supported his ministry to say, well, uh, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, but apparently his time has run out. Apparently God has stopped blessing his ministry because uh, if we were to give money to him, it would be essentially a waste because his ministry is not out and about. He's not able to go out and proclaim the gospel. This tells us something about why Paul is filled with so much affection for the Philippians in this letter. Their conviction to stand with him. Imagine the love that he would have as he would receive gifts from them. Other people had probably left Paul and said that your ministry is no longer worth it to us. This tells us something about why Paul will say later in chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. As our own Reverend Madney has reminded us throughout his ministry The word of God is not bound. Paul may have been bound, but it was not, the gospel was not chained. It was able to go out to the world. The point here for us to consider is that unity in Christ, unity in the gospel, is something enduring because it's something that is is experienced and known and treasured by all those who see and understand that their sins are wiped away in Christ. For freedom, Christ has set us free. For by grace, you are saved. The gospel creates an energy. It creates a a, a life of action in those who know and embrace its truth. People of various socioeconomic, personal, familial backgrounds have a unity of purpose to stand with Paul because of the truth of the gospel. That he has cleansed you. Paul says, I am thankful that you have stood with me from the first day until now. Some people think that Paul is appealing sort of to sort of a cosmic first day until now. What it seems to mean is from the first day that you heard and embraced the gospel of truth, you have stood with me. In other words, the, the, the gospel has changed them. Has the gospel changed you, beloved? Does it create a life and an energy in you? It's not only his reporting of prayer, Paul speaks and he teaches us about a perspective of hope and joy. 
a perspective of hope and joy, and we see that chiefly in verse 6. As he reports to them on how he prays, I pray with joy since, since I know that God who began this work in you will not fail to complete it. We, have, we are to have an assurance that God's work cannot be thwarted. We are to have a confidence that this is a God who finishes what he starts. And, it, and it, it's up to him and his work and his power and his grace. Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says to the Galatians, since you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And what, it, what it all comes down to is, does this God know you? I've used this illustration before, but if you show up at the White House, you claim to know the president, it doesn't really matter. What matters is if the president knows you. That's how you're going to get in. Paul says, you have become known by God. He teaches them something, he teaches us something, it's this. That which is praiseworthy in you is not there because of your own doing. It is there because of God's doing. That which is praiseworthy in you is not there because of your own doing, it's there because of God's doing. And this highlights a huge tension of living under the gospel. That we are responsible creatures, we are accountable creatures, and yet we need to rely wholly on the grace of God in order to do anything which is pleasing to God. We understand that when it comes to uh, the beginning of faith, of justification, that the world is held accountable for faith. Do you have faith in the Son of God? Do you believe in Jesus Christ and trust in his work? You are accountable to that, and yet we know that it is because of God's grace. We know that faith is a gift. We know that it is because of his sovereign power. The same is true of our lives in sanctification. That which is praiseworthy in us is because of God's grace. And so, biblically, scripturally, we need to think about it this way, that we are accountable creatures, we are responsible creatures, and yet anything that is praiseworthy in us is because of God's grace, and we need to rely wholly on God's grace in order to produce anything in us that is pleasing to him. And that brings us back to the idea of soli deo gloria. All that God does in us is to his glory and his alone. Paul will say later in this letter, famously, Therefore, my beloved, as you have now always obeyed, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Up to his sovereign power. But Paul's teaching here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, it it centers around the biblical virtue of hope. And hope is a central virtue to the Christian life. And we need to make sure that we hold on to that. We need to make sure that we understand it. Do you have biblical hope? It's forward-looking. But it gives us uh, a life of love and joy in the present. How can Christians have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances? Hope. What can transform our protests against pain into patience in the midst of suffering? Our natural instinct is to protest against the difficult circumstances that come our way. Protest against our pain. What can transform that into patience and submission to God's will? Hope. See, hope is not something that merely looks to the future. It places its hope, it places its faith and trust in what God is doing and will do in the future. And it brings comfort into the present. It rests in the fact that God's last works are his best works. 
He saves his best for last. The new heavens and the new earth. That will be the the crown of all of God's working in history. It's a very different mindset, isn't it? Than the kind of, of mindset that you get in our wider culture. Or the message that I've received mostly by observing and looking at culture in uh, my life is that your life will probably peak somewhere between 18 and, and 35. You have the best combination of youth and freedom and financial means. When all of those things sort of coalesce, that will be sort of the, the best time of your life. And then the rest of your life, you kind of look back upon that as, boy, those were the, the good times. Life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. That's the kind of mindset you get in our world. Listen to how different it is. This is Richard Sibbs, a Puritan pastor, 17th century. He says, God will have it so for the comfort of Christians that every day they live, they may think my best is yet to come. Every day, my best is yet to come. That every day they rise, they may think I am nearer to heaven one day than I was before. I am nearer death and therefore nearer to Christ. Think about what Paul says later in chapter 1 here. To live is Christ. To die is gain. This is why Paul could have hope in the midst of his chains. He's calling the Philippians to do the same. To rejoice at all times. Have joy in the present because of your hope in the future. The specific hope that Paul has is that God will bring his work of redemption to completion in these Philippian Christians. Saying you have been redeemed, you have been saved and washed by the blood of the Lamb. God is now sanctifying you by his grace. He's making you more and more like Christ. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. That work will always be incomplete in this life. And so Paul looks beyond sanctification even to glorification. God will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will glorify you. And think about how the Bible speaks about the day of the Lord, how it is a great and awesome and terrible, terrifying day of judgment. But to those who have hope in Christ, the last day is changed from a day of terror to a day of confidence. To trust in the work of the Son, to be anchored in the hope of the future, to give you the joy in the present that you may look forward and say, when the Son of God comes again, we will look up. And we will know that our day of salvation has come. Do you live with that kind of confidence in the Son? Do you live with that kind of faith and trust in God's work in you? Refresh yourself in those truths today. Paul says these things indeed to evoke joy in our hope. He says it so that the Philippians would understand and realize that they can be freed to serve one another in the freedom of the gospel. He's saying God's work cannot be thwarted. So live in the freedom of Christ. And the same thing he would say to us today. God's work cannot be thwarted. As we stumble and fall in various things. As we are met with various temptations and trials and challenges. Know that God's work cannot be thwarted. So you can live with freedom in Christ. It's through that that Paul is wanting us to hold fast and firm. To the end, knowing that it is God who works in you. The last idea is the grounding of love and joy and hope. Where is it anchored? And of course, it's, it's anchored in Jesus. It's anchored in the Savior. Paul says things in this passage that really ought to strike us, the kind of affection that he has. He says, I, 
I long for you with the affection of Christ. He says, it's, it's right for me to feel this way about you. I, I have you in my heart. The term for feel is not just kind of an emotional feeling. It's, it's feeling that comes out of knowledge. Right? I see your work. I see your support of me. I see your eagerness to stand for the truth of Christ. So it's right for me to feel this way about you. And then he almost, the language he uses there, it's, it's almost like a vow. God is my witness. This is how much affection I have for you. Paul may have begun his life as a great student, teacher, Pharisee, a wonderful mind, and, and we see the way that the Lord gave him a keen mind in all of his letters, the wonderful ways that he was able to teach about the truth of God. He never lost his intellectual, his academic edge, but God's love for him transformed him into a faithful pastor, a shepherd who loved people, who served people, who wanted to see them brought into fellowship with God. See, that's the heart of our God. The heart of our God to save sinners. The heart of our God that's shown for us in the life of Jesus Christ. All of Philippians really revolves around the Christ hymn of chapter 2, doesn't it? When Paul says, have this unity, have this sameness of mind. Why? Because Jesus Christ humbled himself. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider it a thing to be grasped onto. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. He went to the cross. That's how far he humbled himself. He died to reconcile sinners to God. That is how much God loves people. And that's why Paul was transformed into one who loved people as well. Jesus is the grounding, the foundation of that. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. To be transformed by sacrificial love. To love the brothers and sisters in Christ that are brought into your life. More than sentimentality, far from being divorced from truth, Paul's love stood on solid ground. He says, I long for you all with the with the affection of Jesus Christ. That term there really has to do with sort of the, the insides. The, the Greek mind was such that that which you do or that which you do out of conviction comes from the, the depths of your being, almost the intestines, right from the depths of who you are. And Paul is saying from the depths of who Christ is, the one who, though he was in the form of God, humbled himself. I long for you with that affection. I love you with the heart of Jesus Christ. Love your brothers and sisters with the heart and the love of Christ, allowing him to be our example. But he's much more than an example, isn't he? Because no matter how much we want to emulate him, no matter how much we, we understand and know, be imitators of a man like Paul, as Paul is an imitator of Christ, we know that we will fall short. But that reminds us of the hope of this passage, doesn't it? That as Paul looks at the Philippians, he says, that which is praiseworthy in you is not because of your own doing, it's because of what God has done and is doing in you. So trust in that. Rely wholly upon God's grace. And anchor your hope in the future to give you a love 
a Christ-like love in the present, and a steadfast and an unshakable joy in the midst of whatever circumstances. In the 30,000-foot view of this passage, we see that God's sovereignty, his faithfulness to the work, his work, and the supremacy of the gospel. Do you know Jesus Christ in that way? Are you trusting in him? Are you looking to him and his work to give you an unshakable hope, a steadfast joy, a Christ-like love founded upon him? Do you have this faith and trust in the Savior? Trust his work in you. Look to him for the forgiveness of sins. Understand and know that God finishes what he starts. Understand and know that these things are worth living for. They're worth dying for. The only way to make sense of our sufferings in the present is to anchor a hope in the future. So look to Christ, your Savior, for the thousandth time, perhaps for the first time. Know and understand that that which is praiseworthy in you is because of God's grace. Christ-like love, steadfast hope, unshakable joy, all to the glory of God and because of his work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. We are poor beggars. And we need your love and your grace. So we are are thankful that you have saved us in Christ. Given us faith in the Son. Father, we pray that you would impress all of these things upon our minds and our hearts this morning. We pray that you would build us up. That we might live for you all of our days. And Father, we do give you all of the glory. And we look forward to to the day of Jesus Christ, the last day, when faith becomes sight, when hope becomes reality. Allow us to await that day with great anticipation, knowing each day we come nearer and nearer to those great and marvelous blessings. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.